look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. You're here with Dave and Faisal. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how behavioral finance can make you a calmer, more successful investor. And if that's not good enough, you're also going to learn all about probate from an estate lawyer. Um, you know, we talk a lot about volatility in markets and yeah, a little bit the noise that goes on. And, <laughs> and listen, it can be scary, right? We know this. It can be really scary, particularly for people... Um, who are moving into retirement or living off of their assets, the sensitivity to the swings that they see in their portfolio can on be really both bad. Sides, on both sides. You recall there were listeners of this show that called us up mm-hmm. when the, the Dow Jones was hitting all-time records mm-hmm. and the S&P in the United States was hitting all-time records, and uh, they were calling us saying, are you all in the U.S. because that's the best place to be? And then the opposite side of that is when they, when they hear a trade war or 400-point drop in the yeah. Dow Jones or whatever – uh, they uh, they get concerned right. about the downside. Are you are you staying out of the U.S. now? So they're they're relying on I'll, I'll call it market timing because they're 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 the volatility up or down uh, really affects them. Yeah, and I don't even think it's a it's a market timing call for them most of the time. Fizzle. It's more just an emotional response. Like when you get scared, right? It forces people into making bad decisions, and so we want to talk about the psychology behind that because I think uh, the more education we can do around that for people the better armored they are against falling victim to one of those bad emotional decisions. We've got Daniel Crosby joining us today. He's a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert. Uh, he's also a New York Times bestselling author on market psychology. So no, nobody better to help us understand a little bit about the impacts of this uh, than him. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. All right, so let's let's talk about this. We, you know, we, we haven't had a lot of volatility in the last two years. We start this year. Uh, late January, it starts to spike up, and now we got all kinds of volatility because of you know all of the macroeconomic noise we hear. When it comes to investing, particularly for the you know the risk adverse investor, walk us through a little bit about some of the uh, the mental traps that someone might experience. How uh, well there's there's all kind of things. There's actually 177 different documented sort of behavioral biases that investors fall into, <laughs> and so some of my work has been around taking those 177 uh, because it's not very useful for you to say to your clients, look, there's there's 200 ways that you can get this wrong, uh, to to really drill down and see what are the handful of psychological tendencies that underlie these. And there, there are four or five, you know, I'll start with one. One of them is this tendency we have towards ego. Um, on average, we as a human species are overconfident. Uh, this is especially true of men. You know, in my, in my latest book, I, I cite research that, that showed one study found that 94% of men uh, thought they were better looking than average. 100% of men thought they were friendlier than average. Uh, we're just prone to think we're we're better than we are at these things, and the market <laughs> is no exception. Right. And that can lead us to take some outside risks or uh, not work with someone who can help us or do any number of, of silly things. All right. So, yeah, 177. I'm not sure we have time to do justice to all of those, but it is, it, it is interesting. I, I am curious if you can speak to whether or not there's any differences between men and women in this respect from a behavioral perspective. Yeah, there, there are large differences, and none of them look good for, for the men. 
So women, both in retail, uh, you know, sort of mom and pop uh, women, as well as hedge fund managers and uh, professional women, outperform men at every turn. Uh, single uh, single women outperform single men by about two and a half percent a year. Um, the best the best investors of all, on average, are married women. Uh, but even uh, single folks tend to do worse than married folks. But married women beat. Uh, Married men and women across the board show better behavior. Uh, they're more patient. They trade less. They weigh probabilities more effectively. Uh, so it's a shame that they're underrepresented in, in professional circles, but women are better than men almost across the board uh, by virtue of being less arrogant and more patient. <laughs> That's interesting because anecdotally we can talk about some of our clients and when we have couples, especially when they manage money separately. Right. So he has his own accounts managing his money his way with us mm -hmm. and then we have his wife managing her money with us separately mm -hmm. and the disciplines the conversations the approach they take to the money what they what they value behind that money what's the the reason why they're investing it is completely different and you do have different conversations with them and we find at least anecdotally with our clients there's some that are that are more um more active ego kicks in yeah. or greed kicks in fear kicks in a lot faster on the on the uh the men's side than it does on the on the women's side with our clients yeah now in your in your bestseller the personal benchmark i like the idea of the personal benchmark by the way but it's called personal benchmark integrating behavioral finance and investment management can you give us that maybe at, at a high level frame this for us a bit daniel in terms of some of the um I don't know, the framework or the rules. I'm not sure if those are the best words, but the framework of the rules that you would highlight at a high level if somebody wants to integrate both, you know, their the psychology of investing, but also, you know, good investment management that would meet their needs. Well, you, you set me up there nicely for it when you were talking about how women tend to take a more values-based, goals-based approach. Uh, personal benchmarking is all about uh, ensuring that you have the right goals and the right expectations to live the life that you want to live and not benchmarking to an external index like the S&P or the Dow that you mentioned uh, earlier in the program, mm -hmm. but really understanding, sitting down with your advisor, understanding the returns that you need to give to, to live the specific life that you want to lead and not taking any more or any less risk than is necessary to live that life. And so that makes sense, but, you know, uh, that makes sense intuitively. Everyone's probably nodding their head to that pretty, you know, sensible statement, but it's not something we do. And the fact that we have, you know, the S&P and the Dow and all these updates on our phone and we maybe don't have our personal goals so ready at hand means that they can get crowded out. But my, my very favorite study from Personal Benchmark uh, talked about a group of low-income savers who were barely scraping by uh, having a hard time setting aside money for a rainy day. And when the researchers, they tried carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments, nothing worked until they finally, uh, before these folks made a decision, they had to look at a picture of their children for five seconds before they could, uh, you know, make a spending decision or a saving decision. And when they looked at this picture of their children before making a big financial decision, their savings rates ticked up 250%. So that's what personal benchmarking and goals-based investing is all about to me, just keeping the things that matter so deeply to you uh, top of mind and having them inform all of your financial decisions. 
you know, Daniel, I totally understand and agree with you. Every time I come to work, I got to deal with Dave Popovich. <laughs> I have to look at the pictures of my kids and say, why do I got to deal with Dave? And that's exactly why I come in the office every day. It's my kids. It's not Dave Popovich. So I totally get that. I totally get that. For the kids. Do it for <laughs> the kids. Exactly. I like it. I like that, that visual perspective. I think that's a, a very uh, key piece. So why is it that some people, when even, though, even though they know um, what kind of rate of return or savings goal or any type of objective like that? Why is it that people try to um, still want more or try using different benchmarks? Um, it's funny because some, some people that we've talked to have changed their benchmark year over year based upon which is the best performing benchmark of that year. Why didn't we do last year? You know, yeah. like why didn't we do that kind of return on that one benchmark in our entire portfolio? And they, they, they steer away from the Well, you only need X percent, but you want more than X because the benchmark said, so what's, What's the feeling that's going on there? And maybe you can help us understand why does the individual investor feel that way or act in that certain way? Well, you're exactly right. You know, when you look at the U.S. that's done so well over the past few years, now suddenly no one wants to benchmark their life uh, to a diversified multi-asset class portfolio where they should truly be. They want to benchmark to, you know, just the U.S. Well, no sensible investor has 100% uh, of their portfolio in, in U.S. equities. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a trap that we fall into is having this, this moving goalpost. And, you know, there's such a huge gap between knowing what to do and then doing it mm-hmm. uh, because volatility makes all of us stupid. I, you know, I talk in The Laws of Wealth, my, my new book, about uh, research that was done that shows that the average investor loses 13% of their IQ during periods of market volatility and, you know, frankly, some folks don't have an extra 13 percent they're working with. And so and so when they're, you know, even if they know, even if you've taught them all the right lessons, uh, they're sort of out the door when you need them most, which is why I think it's so crucial uh, that in addition to the education that that, you know, I do and that folks like you do, they also need someone to hold their hand in that moment of fear walk them back and, and sort of intervene and say, look, you, you can't do this. You're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, we want, we want all the wrong things at the wrong time, right? We want uh, when, when the U.S. market has run up seven years, eight years in a row, now we get excited about the U.S. when it's expensive and unattractive. So we are, we are wired to be horrible investors. I mean, I say, uh, I say that God or nature couldn't have created a worse investor than you or I, uh, which is why we need someone to, you know, sort of hold our hands and walk us through it. All right, before we sign off this segment, I should remind everybody that we have uh, our next seminar coming up on Tuesday, May 29th. We're holding that at uh, 7 o'clock, standard time, regular time, 7, 8 o'clock at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Give us a call at 966-8400 to register for that or go to morethanmoneyradio.com. Our conversation continues with Daniel, Daniel Crosby after the break, so join us after this break on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Daniel Crosby with us. He's a psychologist. He's also a behavioral finance expert and New York Times best-selling author on market psychology. And you and I both know from personal history that um, psychology, behavioral finance, has such a big role to play with how people react both positively and negatively to what's happening. Correct. And, and I think we've learned very early in our career, in fact, even before our career started, that we were not wired to be good investors ourselves. Right. And so we had to adopt some sort of discipline. Right. Um, and when we, we adopt the discipline and we stick to it, 
over time it reaches our clients' goals. Sure. And so the, the hard part is even when we start seeing the markets rally or we see the markets fall, we have an emotional reaction, you and I. Yep. We sit down, we discuss, debate, throw things at each other, stuff like that that happens in our in our investment war room, I call, I call, I call it. So yep. the, the interesting part behind that is that when we step aside and we take a break from our our emotional reaction. We go. Let's go back to the math. Let's go back to what's what's right for our clients. It's it's interesting to see how we go through that. Can you imagine a person who's not in responsible for other people's money? What they go through, and they're responsible for themselves while dealing with their goals, their family issues, whatever else may come up. It's it's you're juggling so many things, and and sometimes you focus just on the money, and you think that's going to solve the other problems. And we've had many individuals come to us and have concerns about whatever's going on in their life, but they're really focusing on the portfolio until we dig in right. and they go, this is what's going on in my life, my children, my spouse, whatever's happening in their world. And then they come back and go, well, I'm just trying to focus my attention on the money because those problems are, I think if I have more money, it'll solve those problems. And it, <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. So, so Daniel, I'll bring you back in here. And my question to you is, should the surgeon be doing emergency surgery on a family member? Because that's what we're talking about when you get, when you get trapped in these emotional uh, decisions around your money. Yeah, emotion is uh, one of the uh, most powerful ways you can get messed up. And you know, emotion is such a, a powerful thing. It's a it's a mental shortcut for us. And in uh, you know, if you're running from a tiger, emotion is a very powerfully positive thing that will activate you to do the right thing. Uh, if you're trying to make investment decisions, you'll do just the wrong thing. So chapter four of my new book says uh, the name of the chapter is if you're excited, it's a bad idea. So <laughs> I'm a believer that, you know, that that good investing is boring investing. Uh, and, you know, you need a professional in your corner uh, to help you, uh, you know, help you make sure you're not making exciting investments that are poor decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So now let's let's talk about some strategies yep. that we can help these listeners to become better investors. Give us some strategies that we can use today uh, to become better investors. Okay, so the first thing, you know, I go through 10 commandments, right, in my book. The first of them is just for your listeners to understand that they are what matters most. The best predictor of whether or not they get to their retirement goals uh, is not what you know world leaders do. It's not what the market does. The research shows that you are the best predictor of your success or your failure. And it's boring. It's boring stuff. The blocking and tackling of investing, mm -hmm. setting aside a little money each uh, each month, you know, managing your fees, these sorts of things. So taking ownership of that, I think, is the first and most powerful thing that someone can do. The second thing that I think they need to do. Uh, is understand that you can't do this alone. You need a professional in your corner because there's such a huge gap between knowing what you ought to do and, and doing the right thing in that moment of fear or greed. So I cite research in the book, actually research out of Canada, uh, that shows that people who work with advisors uh, are, are twice as happy, they're three times as prepared, and they tend to do three to 4% better per year net of fees and you know the impact of three and a half four percent over a lifetime of investing is it will double your terminal wealth and so all of the research shows the reason these people are outperforming is not because frankly uh their uh, advisors are putting them in the hottest mutual funds or right. anything that's outperforming it's because they're saving them from themselves they're keeping them from being their own worst enemy and that is the most dramatically positive 
uh, thing that an investment professional can help you do. And that's little understood, I think, by the average client who thinks that they've hired sort of a, a local Warren Buffett who's going to put them in, in high-flying stocks. So what are your thoughts when it comes to those um, do-it-yourself investors? I'm going to use robo-advisors because there's really no emotion when you have a robo-advisor working with you. Um, there's no conversation per se mm-hmm. on, on calming people down because you know people who are, and I'll, I'll use the best example, exchange-traded funds or ETFs. When the markets are volatile like they've been since February, you see massive outflows of ETFs. And the, the, the reason why ETFs, or one of the reasons why they had ETFs put in was you can buy the market at lower fees. So over the long term, you'll make more money versus an actively managed who can't um, perform equal to or better than the market. But we're seeing people have take money out of the ETFs. And that, that, that's a reaction mm-hmm. to a long-term approach. So, so what, what's the... Um, what, what's the what's your feeling towards those types of investment approaches, do-it-yourself or discount brokerages and, and robo-advisors? Because there's many Canadians who are going to be uh, are in or going to be looking at that as an option for their financial future. What are your thoughts behind those? So there there are things um, there are things that robo-advisors do extremely well, and there are things uh, about which I think they're entirely unproven. So the thing that uh, robo-advisors do well is they can come up with a nice, low-cost, well-diversified asset allocation for you. They can do that as well uh, as, as any advisor on the planet. Now, what they are unproven at, because most of them are only five, six, seven years old, and it's been an extremely uh, heady, bullish time to be an investor, what remains to be seen is if people continue to make good decisions when times get tough, when there's a 30 40 50% drawdown in equity markets, uh, will those robo-advisors be able to hold the hand and constrain the bad behavior of those investors? I think that that is uh, questionable. Uh, it remains to be seen. But I think the, the efficacy of robo-advice lives and dies uh, on their ability to do that because, once again, it's that and not market returns that drive this great performance over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that people can override uh, that robo or do it themselves, they will tend to make all the wrong moves at the wrong times. So I'm, I'm an investment advisor myself here in the States. I've written, you know, three books on behavioral finance. I have a PhD and I pay a financial advisor to manage my money because I know I'm as stupid as the next person when it comes right down to it. Uh, and when things get scary. Yeah, it's the surgeon doing emergency surgery on their family, right? It is uh, it is a behavioral issue, not a necessarily a mathematical issue. I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I contend, you know, we've often heard that the market is driven by fear and greed. I think it's only by fear. It's the fear of missing out or it's the fear of losing money, but um, so be it, call it what you want. Maybe just talk to us briefly about that before, uh, before we have to wrap up this segment, sort of those two uh, overriding general principles and um, and how do people give me some idea of how somebody might catch themselves those guys who think they're better than what they are how do they catch themselves in that thought process and say oh I better take a deep breath here well you know it's interesting one of the, the best things that I think you can do is keep a trade journal like if you if you are intent on trying this yourself and you want to see if you're really uh, as as hot as you think you are uh, is to keep a trade journal. I had a friend uh, call me recently who is not in the industry, who's not a professional investor, 
and said, wow, I've, I've gotten these incredible returns yeah. uh, picking stocks in my own account over the past five or six years. And I'm thinking that I may want to get into the business. And I said, wow, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you. Let me let me see your track record a bit. And it was, you know, worse, worse than a buy and hold index investor. Um, but we don't remember these things accurately, right? We don't, mm-hmm. we, we attribute more greatness to ourselves than is likely do. We don't, uh, we, we don't attribute that to just a rising market lifts all boats. And then simultaneously, when things go bad, we do blame it on externalities. So the, the human tendency is when things are going well, I did that. When things are going poorly, I blame someone else. And so those those two reflexes uh, are are pretty damaging when it comes to trying to be a money manager. So I think, uh, you know, if you're intent on doing this and you think you're great, uh, keep a trade journal and know, uh, know in financial markets that you can get the right results uh, for the wrong reason. That's yeah. a very tricky thing about markets. Uh, is that you can r- be right and still be a moron, as I say, and so you have to do this for you know for for long periods of time to know if it's due to your skill and not to luck. Daniel, we have to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, Daniel Crosby is a psychologist, a behavioral finance expert, also a New York Times best-selling author, and I think you know there's a lot of um, a lot of validity to what he's saying, right? And we talk about it maybe in slightly different language. We talk about the context of the money. I think we have to start educating people, Faisal, about going down that path, particularly in retirement, about attaching a context to what the money's supposed to do, right? That was the picture of looking at your kids. We've got to look at a picture of what it is this money's supposed to do. What's your vision? And build yeah. a strategy to that outcome, right? And not worry so much about what the best performing equity index is because you get trapped on the wrong side of that. Okay, time to take a break. But uh, before we do, let me remind everybody that uh, on Tuesday, May 29th, 7 o'clock at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits, we'll be hosting our next uh, seminar, educational seminar on transitioning to our living in retirement. If you'd like to join us for that, give us a call at 966-8400 or go to morethanmoneyradio.com and you can register there. Now, don't go away because after the break, we'll be learning what you need to know to help your loved ones with probate. All the fees, taxes, loopholes associated with it, all of that and more on 770-CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770-CHQR and More Than Money. Faisal, we talk a lot about uh, lifestyle, and part of lifestyle uh, planning is transition planning. And that means will leg- wills, legacies, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think when you see more and more people as they age are more concerned about how this money's getting uh, transferred over to their loved ones or to mm-hmm. charities of their choice. And, and one of the biggest concerns that I hear about, and because mainly we get a lot of the, the information coming out of Ontario, yep. um, is probate fees and what's the cost, if right. I, you know, and how do we mitigate that or minimize those costs. And right. so let's have a bit of a chat about that. Yeah. Uh, and so we've got Catherine Zhang joining us today, a recurring guest with us. She's an associate at Walsh LLP. Catherine, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can start the conversation with a bit about what probate is. Maybe you can just educate our listeners about uh, about probate, and then we can talk about its application in uh, Alberta versus other provinces. Yeah, so probate um, is a court order that um, an executor or personal representative will have to get um, in order to process some of the assets um, that uh, an individual who's passed away owns. Um, Typically, probate is required if you have um, real property in Alberta or if you have a bank account with a sizable 
a sizable asset or wealth um, in that account, um, those institutions will require court order. And so um, if you've got a will, it's usually called a grant of probate. If you don't have a will, court order is still required, uh, but that process is going to be called getting a grant of administration. And at the end of the day, when the process is complete and you get an order, um, that personal representative will have the authority um, bestowed upon them by the court to say, yes, you can go ahead and administer this individual's assets. Okay. Um, so, got it. Now, let's talk a little bit about, there's some differences, jurisdictional differences between Well, let's back up and probate. talk about the cost. There's a cost to this. There's a fee, a probate fee. Yeah, so I was going to say, let's and it's start, different amongst different provinces. So correct. let's start let's in start Alberta. Here. Let's start yeah, home. let's yeah. talk about what the cost of probate is in Alberta. Yeah, so Catherine, yeah, let's do that. What's, what's the yeah. cost here in Alberta? Uh, so the cost to file a probate application depends on how much the estate uh, is worth. In Alberta, we're very lucky as we're capped. Um, and so as soon as you have over $250,000 um, in wealth, the highest probate court filing fee you're going to pay is $525. Um, it's staggered. So if you, for example, own um, over $25,000 but less than $125,000, they're going to prorate that fee and you're paying a $275 court filing fee right. as at, you know, today's date. Um, uh, that doesn't include the, the perhaps legal cost or accounting cost of preparing that application, and so that will vary um, firm by firm or however you manage it. But uh, the bottom line is the court filing fee is capped here, um, which is different from some of the other jurisdictions uh, in Canada. Ontario is one example. I think BC is the other example where they take a, they take a percentage depending on how big or small the estate is. So let me just jump in there and talk about what's classified under this this uh, fee for probate. When you say your wealth, let's take a couple. Uh, one member of the two um, passes away. What gets counted in, in probate in that situation? Uh, the assets that get counted are whatever ha the deceased owned in their name alone as that date of death. So if you're dealing with um, a husband and wife situation um, and they own a house jointly and they own accounts jointly, you're not going to have anything to probate because the surviving spouse will receive all of those assets outside of the estate. Um, if you're looking at a situation where an individual dies leaving a house in their own own name alone or a bank account in their own name alone, then that asset gets calculated towards um, what falls into the estate and the fee for granted probate or grant of administration. Yeah, let's just jump in there and also mention those who have RRSPs, mm -hmm. Registered Retirement Income Funds, or RIF, TFSA, they all have designated beneficiaries, maybe some insurances or mm -hmm. insurance contracts. Those all have designated beneficiaries. So, Catherine, those are exempt or out, outside of the, uh, the, the, the estate itself for probate purposes. Is that correct? Yes, so long as the beneficiary is has survived and there's no gift over to the residue of the estate, um, yes, that is exempt for probate purposes. Now, lots of people try um, different ways to avoid uh, the probate process. Again, there's a cap in terms of how much you have to pay um, in probate, Alberta. But, yeah, but there mm -hmm. can be additional costs associated with legal and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. lots of people are still sensitive to that, and they want to try to minimize the time, effort, and cost associated with that. Tell us a little bit about some of the strategies that people use and yeah. uh, what we need to be aware of if you are going to pursue some of these strategies. Yeah, I think the 
biggest ones we see are either um, the the testator, so the person dealing with their estate, um, wanting to get to, to put assets in joint names, so indicating, well, I mean, I my intention is for my real property to pass to my kids anyways, I'm going to put one child on um, for administration purposes. Um, I mean, that's one strategy, and we can talk about after the reasons why I don't like seeing that, sure. um, or that, you know, that we would recommend against that. And then the second one is saying, you know what, I don't even need to be on title, I'm going to just transfer this asset in whole during my lifetime, so that that there's there's not I can take out the um, transmission fee or um, the fee for filing additional paperwork with land titles. They'll just have this property outright during their lifetime, and that's those are the two primary examples. And those are um, two topics we absolutely talk to clients about um, during the estate planning process if mm-hmm. probate fees are one of their concerns. Well, and, and a lot of people, Faisal, think, listening right now, say, oh, well, that's pretty smart, right? I could set up my kids on my non-registered accounts, and they could just take over or mm-hmm. move my house into, you know, the kids, one of the kids or both kids' names or something along those lines. That, yeah. that doesn't sound like a bad idea. So I'll, I'll take a personal situation. My father decided to do that way back in the day, and he said, you know what? I'm going to put everything mm-hmm. in joint with my son. He's He, he manages money for a living. He mm-hmm. seems responsible from a reasonable distance. <laughs> Why not put everything joint with him? And then my sister gave me a dirty look when that came out. So um, the, the risks that my my father were was not thinking about. Right. Um, mm-hmm. One of them, Catherine, was, well, I'm now divorced. And so um, that could have been a problem. Um, yep. I If I own a business... Mm-hmm. Or I have creditors that could be a problem. Like so, let's talk about you know we've got a couple minutes left, but what what are some of the problems that people should be aware of uh, mm-hmm. when when thinking about putting their their property in joint with somebody else besides their spouse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is, um, the the biggest message we try to get out to clients is as soon as you put somebody else on as a joint owner to one of your assets, you lose full control. And I mean, every parent goes into it thinking, you know, my kid has my best interest at heart, um, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. And unfortunately, Time and time again, we see that um, kids are infallible, or kids are fallible, I I should say. Um, And sometimes stuff happens, and um, kids either get divorced or they end up perhaps thinking mom and dad don't need the money anyways, and they start treating that money as their own or that asset as their own. Um, And and you you see clients come in and say, well, I put this into joint name, but now I I have lost control. I don't have the ability to have a say, or I don't know where my money is. Um, That's that's a common problem that we see. Um, And I mean, on the flip side, even if um, that particular child is a dream child and um, is committed to um, managing that asset pursuant to mom and dad's wishes or their parents' wishes, um, there is also the risk uh, that other siblings, like your sister, uh, Faisal, might kind of say, hold on, wait a second, what's going on here? And um, unintended discord in the family can arise and unintended distrust. And so it it could make um, family life or the family relationship a lot more complicated and administration of that particular asset. That's one, you know, that's one of the things. And then obviously the one for uh, the concern for 
distributing that asset in that person's lifetime right away is you absolutely lose full control of that asset. So the adult no longer has the ability to use those funds or use that house to their benefit because they've transferred it. I think those are all terrific points. And of course, we'll be talking about that on Tuesday, May 29th at 7 p.m. The uh, We're going to be at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. So if you're up north, you'd love to join us. We'd love to see you. And you can register for this, uh, this seminar by calling 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Join us after the break as we'll continue chatting with Catherine Zhang. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. You're with Dave and Faisal. We're talking about, uh, well, we talked about probate uh, and estate issues um, specific to probate, uh, Faisal. But the whole legacy bucket, right, this whole idea of I've built wealth, I've worked my whole life to create wealth, um, how do I transition it? I'm going to say that the legacy that people leave is not just about wealth. It's important. Don't get me wrong. Taxes, fees, right? How to, tr- how to transition that. Very important. But nobody wants to leave the legacy of a legal problem, a battle, or a broken family. Correct. And a lot of people don't um, believe that there will be one. Right. Because we have that conversation. How's the relationship with yep. your children? How are the relationship with the siblings? You know, those types of things. And, 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 I'll tell you, most of them say, yeah, things are good, right? Until maybe money gets in the middle of it or something goes wrong. You know, these are the things we need to worry about. Um, I think when people are putting their, quote unquote, estate plan together, they either have experienced or heard of the experience of going through probate or these types of issues. And it's, um, it's a fear that, oh my God, I don't want my family member or my significant other or somebody to go through all this work. Just put everything in joint, make life easier. Yeah. yeah, joint. Um, you know, one of the it's a bit of a taboo topic too, right? I mean, uh, talking about what happens after you're gone can be difficult for couples, right? Yeah, um, and it can be difficult for the family dynamic. You know, talking to the kids. One, many kids we know don't know what their parents have. The parents have been secretive about that. Sure, right? That can lead to problems. But two, um, you know, there's all kinds of problems that can be created uh, with if. Uh, if one of them family members or somebody in the family somehow feels that they have not been recognized properly, right? And yeah. so there's, I, I want to talk to Catherine a little bit. And, and Catherine, um, maybe you can give us your opinion on some of the common, um, I don't know if the word is mistakes, or the issues that, that hmm. you think people, when they're putting together their estate plans, should be talking about together as a couple and thinking about and then what your opinion is on on how broadly that conversation happens in the family. Yeah, I mean, I think my philosophy typically with estate planning is to the to the best extent possible, um, be open with your family. Because um, I think for us, one of the biggest reasons for clients to come in and say, hey, I, I'm just not sure about the situation. Can you help me um, explain to me what my rights or obligations or um, responsibilities are with respect to this is because something's happened in the estate plan uh, that they were not a part of and that they weren't aware of. Uh, and so they're kind of checking in to make sure, well, is everything going in accordance with the way it should be going or um, should I be concerned because I wasn't named as one of mom's executors. 
Uh, and so for us, the biggest one is having that conversation between the couple and coming to an agreement with, yeah, who do you want to administer your estate? Um, and if you have more than one child and um, the intention is to name only one or two of them, where you have, whereas you have more kids um, and you're leaving some out, uh, it, it's, it's sometimes important to have that conversation with the kids while that planning is happening to say, well, here are the reasons um, why we've appointed only one or two of you rather than all four of you. I mean, the, the one of the easy explanations is administering an estate with four executors can be really unwieldy and sure. um, yeah. just make things so much more complicated. Um, there can be jurisdictional issues in terms of um, people living out of province or people living um, out of country. Uh, and so that's usually that's usually an easy way to kind of start off the conversation and, and give people he a heads up of what to expect. Um, I think a lot of the times, too, um, we've started having conversations with clients about, well, um, in addition to understanding how you want to divide your property on death, let's take a look at um, whether or not you've already distributed some of your property during your lifetime or whether or not you think that mm -hmm. the kids will have some sort of expectation that, for example, if you helped one kid with a down payment on a house or you helped another kid through post-secondary education, that the other children um, you have are going to accept uh, expect some sort of equalization um, and sometimes that does come up you, you know the will says I want to divide my state equally amongst my kids uh, and the one of the kids will put their hands up and say okay but you know my my sister over here received a half a million dollars for a for a down payment during her lifetime that should be counted towards the half estate and so it's really kind of examining that and making your intentions clear once that that asset or that gift has been identified we talk about it in the will was that intended to be an advance on the estate or was it intended to be a gift and that way when the will gets read whoever the children are that are involved um, really have that chat and have a clear understanding of where mom and dad sat on the issue so that people aren't fighting about it after death. So let me ask a, a two-part question here. Let's talk about out of province. What if yeah. your executor is from a different province? And then let's flip it and say, what if you own assets or property in a different province? What do we have to be aware of? Yeah, so it's a case-by-case -case basis. The default position in Alberta is if you name an executor who is out of province, um, they will be required to post a bond on your estate, um, and that typically is purchasing some sort of insurance that's equivalent to the size of your estate. And that's just... Um, you know, Alberta's way of protecting the beneficiaries in the estate. If uh, somebody from out of province gets appointed uh, and then has access to all of the funds and absconds with money, uh, at least there's some sort of um, comparable amount in, in that estate available for the beneficiaries. There are some ways uh, to request a waiver of bond, and so as clients come in, we can talk to them about the different types or the different types of planning that you can do. Um, if you have 
uh, assets outside of the province, depending on what that province requires and depending on what type of asset you own, um, you may have to get um, a grant of probate or a grant of administration in two provinces. The main grant will be in the jurisdiction where the individual was domiciled or resident, uh, and then what happens is that application kind of gets duplicated in the second province in order to deal with that province's assets. So for example, if you have a vacation home in BC, you'd likely get a resealed grant for BC if most of the assets were administered in Alberta. So are you saying that they could be paying probate in BC for that asset or no? For the BC or? asset. For the BC asset only because mm -hmm. they're a resident, let's say, of Alberta. And right. so therefore they would only be paying probate on that piece. Yeah, and probate is... Uh, um, province-specific, so typically um, provinces will only require you to report on assets in that province. And what can a client do or a family do in the event that they do have assets in multiple jurisdictions, uh, Catherine? Does it make sense to have a singular will in Alberta that encompasses all the assets, or should you perhaps have um, multiple wills, you know, to handle the jurisdictional differences? Yeah, I mean... Um, that is probably on a case-by-case -case basis. I would say, generally speaking, um, as long as all the assets are in Alberta, it's or sorry, as long as all of the assets are in Canada, it's acceptable to have one will rather than having multiple wills in Canada, uh, because then it can be confusing about which will has revoked which other will, which will is working in conjunction with the other will. So, um, you know, we would encourage clients to identify the assets that are specific in other provinces and determine whether or not they want something different to happen to that asset. But on a typical default position, it's not necessary for you to have wills in every jurisdiction that you've got um, property in, at least for Canada. Okay. Um, I think uh, we'll have to wrap it up there. We're quickly running out of time. Um, if you've been listening to this, I think, Faisal, there's lots of takeaways, is that um, as you develop uh, wealth, there comes complexity with that. Correct. Right? And you need to think a little bit about that because in the absence of that, and uh, Catherine has shared some of the horror stories um, of the outcome, uh, the potential outcomes, if you don't think about it, uh, that's, again, I go back to my comment. Nobody sits at the end of the day and says, really, what I want to leave is discord in, in the family. Yes. Right? And yep. I want all of my estate to be absorbed in legal fees in a battle. Nobody wants that. That's correct. So uh, it is important to take time to think about it. And as Catherine said, it's a case-by-case, case, so it's a family-specific basis because there's lots of, uh, you know, moving parts in the family. Catherine, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. We've got uh, input again from Catherine Zhang, who's an associate at Walsh LLP. Uh, in Calgary, and you can reach her at Walsh offices if you're interested in <clears throat> getting some input on your own personal estates. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the whole uh, wealth strategy, right? So when we talk about the four buckets and the five pillars of our investment strategy, the four buckets encompass a total wealth strategy. Okay, before we sign off on another show, let's uh, remind everybody about our upcoming seminar here. It's going to be Tuesday, May 29th. It'll be held at uh, the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits, 7 p.m. is our start time. It'll be a one-hour presentation. Come on out. We'd love to see you. We'll educate you a little bit about uh, the four buckets and the five pillars of our investment strategy and how they uh, can help bulletproof your retirement. To register, give us a call at 966-8400 or go to uh, morethanmoneyradio.com and you can register through the website. Um, any of the past segments, today or, or past segments, can always be accessed at morethanmoneyradio.com or you can actually have them uh, delivered directly to you now by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. 
All right, thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. Have a great weekend. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.